Hey, what's going on? We got an interview. It's one of our favorites. We're just going to let you know. The Money Man, Dave Leventhal from the Center for Public Integrity, is here. We've got Q2 fundraising numbers official. Official. We're going to talk about big trends. Are people raising a bunch of money? Are they raising not so much money? Who are the haves? Who are the have-nots? And folks, you know I got to go in on one candidate. I've been selling short on this dude for over a year and a half. We're going to talk Beto in a big way. But before we do, I got to remind you, the way we keep the lights on here on this program, the way we keep independent political media alive is by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can sign up for our Patreon. If you are at the $3 level, you get a bonus podcast on Monday, a bonus podcast on Friday. That is a lot of content that never, never, never leaves you too far away from my jury deliberations when news strikes. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, man, news, it's got a habit of striking at, at weird times. Never talking about how we support the show, though. What do you say we just do the damn thing? My guest, uh, you guys know him, you love him. He's our, our our money man here on the show, Dave Leventhal, the Center for Public Integrity. Welcome back to the program, good sir, Mister Young. It's it's great to be back with you. All right, Q two numbers are in. I'm very very excited to talk about it because I feel like you know Q one. Uh, is always, you know, uh, speculative. You, you you find out which candidates prepared in, in, in a certain way where the early buzz is. But now the rubber has met the road a little bit and there seem to be some fairly clear haves and have nots. So let's start with the top. Who was our biggest moneymaker in Q2? So Pete Buttigieg is is leading the way here uh, in in something that surprises a lot of people, but I'm actually not that surprised about. It, and here's why: uh, Pete Buttigieg is running a uh, a very effective campaign uh, from a money standpoint because he's using a more traditional playbook. Now, hey, you know, a year ago nobody knew who Pete Buttigieg was. South Bend, Indiana, most people couldn't find it on a map, uh, but yet Mayor Pete is getting to where he is um, in the sense that he's going and in, in having traditional fundraisers. He's not afraid to go to the big dollar donor piggy bank. He yeah. is sort of rejecting the Elizabeth Warren style rejection of big money and significant fundraising opportunities and spending a lot of time with people who have means and the potential interest to donate those means to his campaign. Uh, and as a result, he's making up for uh, sort of the lack of name recognition initially, uh, the lack of uh, overwhelming stature that a, a senator or a former vice president might have. And he's gotten himself uh, into a, a pretty darn good situation. I mean, he, he has twice the money going into July 
Justin, yeah. than Joe Biden does. He That's has more than crazy. $20 million. Joe Biden has, is just a little bit more than $10 million. So, you know, money is not everything. Right? You never want to overstate the case when it comes to the importance of political money. But the fact of the matter is, if you, if you don't have it, then it's kind of hard to run a campaign. Uh, it really begins to matter when, when you're lacking it. And so for somebody like Pete Buttigieg, puts him in a good place. Joe Biden, make no mistake about it, he's also in a pretty good place, too. He's got what he needs at this point in the game to run the campaign the way that he wants to, to be aggressive, to build staff, uh, to get himself across the country. But he's got that. Kamala Harris. Well, here, hold on, wait. Let, 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 let's let's sure. let, let, let's go ahead and stick on Buttigieg for for a couple seconds because he is somebody that has been a dynamo in terms of fundraising. And there's another uh, uh, white bread candidate that everybody assumed would kind of fill that role, and we will get to him in a second. But uh, this has not really translated to a boom polling wise. He is still somebody that is uh, polling in the single digits at his best, high single digits. Uh, what I think is fascinating about this is that this ensures that he's going to continue to at least have the promise that he's going to play in Iowa, right? That that he is he is not somebody that I think when we start to get to the have nots, you've got to start worrying about like, all right, well, how viable is this when we still have another six months until anybody starts actually voting? Uh, Buttigieg does not have that. But let, let, let's let's transfer to Biden. Biden makes. Well, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I would I would just pause on him to say one thing about his polling nationally. His yeah. polling, not great. Okay, he's he's not in the in the Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris level at this point. Where he is doing pretty well is in New Hampshire, and as we well know, first in the nation primary state, the New Hampshire electorate very uh, very independent minded, very idiosyncratic. This is a state that went for Bernie Sanders significantly over Hillary Clinton in the last election. It is a state that will go for people like Pat Buchanan over Bob Dole, if you want to go down memory lane a little while. So somebody like Pete Buttigieg really appeals to a lot of New Hampshire voters. I've met a lot of them when I was straight out of Syracuse University, my first job out of college covering New Hampshire politics. And wow, it, it's really unlike any other place. So <laughs> he's got a good chance there. And with the now, money you, and the you think so because that he has that that can go a long way in a state like New Hampshire. I have always thought that he was Iowa or bust just because New Hampshire has so many kind of quote unquote favorite sons that are going to be playing there, including Biden, Warren and Sanders that are just known commodities. And in a field of 24, you, you don't even have to be first necessarily. If he was able to get second place, third place, even fourth or fifth place, if the circumstances were right, that could be something that that, that could do him pretty well. Now, Iowa is going to be key, of course, it always is. But I don't think it's over if Pete Buttigieg is, you know, seventh or sixth or whatnot uh, in Iowa. And that's not saying that he'll he'll do that poorly. He might do a lot better than that. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's actually got an interesting path forward that is a heck of a lot better at this stage in the game, early as it is, compared to a lot of the other candidates who are in the race, who I suspect we're going to talk about soon. But oh, yeah. oh, I'm yeah. feeling a lot better about political life right now if I'm Pete Buttigieg versus, say, Cory Booker or Kirsten Gillibrand or, you know, any of the lot of 12, 14 other candidates whose names aren't. Biden, Harris, Warren, et cetera. How much do we make of the fact that, uh, you know, it's been reported that a lot of the Obama fundraising team had kind of split off between Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. Uh, is is that something that, that 
seems to track, uh, considering that this gaudy number has shown up for a mayor from South Bend, Indiana? I mean, they, they definitely have people who are on their campaign right now who are uh, who are hired hands uh, and have been in the game for a long time, who are creative, have the ability to fundraise in creative ways. And especially if you're somebody like, for example, an Elizabeth Warren, you got to get really darn creative if you're going to self-limit the ways and the means of fundraising for yourself, as she's very much done. Now, a lot of folks have, of course, gone to Biden, not all of Team Obama has flocked to Biden. In fact, there are plenty of examples where Obama-Biden people from from times past, years your, are uh, are elsewhere. They're either not in the game or they're with other candidates, and and that's to be expected. That's politics. Uh, but they definitely do have people who are in a good position to help them. And also to people like Joe Biden, people such as uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, they are in a position, and Pete Buttigieg too, are really hiring up. Uh, they've When you have money, you have an opportunity to take your campaign, which might be small to start. You might have a couple of dozen people uh, on your payroll, maybe not even that. And suddenly you're measuring them not in two figures, but in three figures. And that makes a huge, huge difference in your ability to go beyond just the first initial Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, duopoly uh, or binary, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. You can start to staff up in South Carolina, in Nevada, uh, so some of the other early states. And of course, we've got states like California that are really, really, really early in the process this time are going to be super Tuesday states or, or going to be key, critical, delegate uh, monsters for these candidates. And uh, you got to be able to be able to play there too. If, if you're not in Texas or California or some of these other states where you can really, really get a big delegate hall, then you're going to be a whole lot of nowhere, especially given the rest of the field. So Buttigieg, uh, 24.8 million, uh, 294,000 individual donors. He was third. He comes in above Biden, not only in money, but also in individual donors. Biden has 21.5 million, 256,000. Uh, let's actually skip Biden for a second and, and and go to Elizabeth Warren. She has the second most donors with 19.1 million. Uh, uh, her donor count is uh, 384,000. This was a big rebound because she kind of had a disappointing Q1 figure, right? She sure did. And it, you know, a lot of people thought that, hey, you know, her campaign was kind of dead on arrival, really wasn't catching fire. She was still sort of having the hangover of the is Elizabeth Warren a Native American or not? Yeah. The sparring with the president. She had made a couple of pretty pretty bad stumbles uh, in, in terms of what she was saying about the whole thing. So, yeah, she didn't start the year off uh, very well, and she ended 2018 ha having a pretty lousy end to her, her year, all considered. So uh, what happened? Well, she started talking about policy. She started talking about how she has a plan, and she stuck to it. She went person by person, rally by rally, kept it small, kept it tight, stayed on message, and it began to click. Now, sometimes it doesn't. In fact, often it doesn't for candidates who try to take a different approach or change direction very quickly in the midst of a campaign rollout. Uh, it worked for her, and it's been not only working for her, but it's really been working for her. She is going way up in the polls. Her uh, her her notoriety is way up. And of course, she had a great debate performance too, 
compared to the rest of the field. And that uh, definitely helped her. It may have not helped her overwhelmingly in a way that uh, Kamala Harris's performance helped her in the first Democratic presidential debate. But she did well enough where she didn't hurt herself. No, sure. that was it was, it was a she showcase. She status quo. She was, and a lot of people thought she did a great job. Yeah, she was Diana Ross and everybody else were, were, were the, the, the Supremes. Like, like she was the only <laughs> big star that was up there on that stage. And the only other story that came out of it was Beto self-destructing. Uh, the one thing I would say about Elizabeth Warren is that to me, she'd been pushing those policy proposals long before her her poll numbers turned around. They they turned around when she pushed for impeachment. That was the move so far of the early campaign for me was her saying the day the Mueller report came out, I'm for impeachment. Now everybody else had to follow her and she got to showcase, I think, what is her best quality, which is I'm bold. I'll say the thing that other people that other people won't. Uh, and that has really, I think, uh really spiked uh, for her because she has not looked back in terms of her polling and obviously now her fundraising. And it's not just enough to be bold, though. There are lots of other candidates who are trying to do bold things or manufacture bold things. Let's yes. look at Kirsten Gillibrand, for example. I mean, she's constantly talking about drinking whiskey and she's playing beer pong and she's doing all this stuff to <laughs> really try to, to separate herself uh, from the crowd and where is she right now? She's at 1% in the polls, if she's even at 1% in the polls. Elizabeth Warren was able to to back it up uh, and to really begin to connect with people. And in it seemed really kitschy and really gimmicky for her to say, I'm totally rejecting money uh, from, from lobbyists, from PACs, from anyone associated with oil. I mean, it was pretty much like, don't give me money. And, and then Elizabeth Warren, well, what did she do then? She began to do this whole thing where she would call people who gave her $5 or $10 yeah. or $100. She would make videos of it. She'd put it up yeah. on Facebook. It was very, very grassroots, proletariat kind of stuff. And it, it kind of clicked with people in a sense that she was leading in that regard, too, because other candidates weren't quite doing the same thing that she was. Sure, you know. Beto O'Rourke was live streaming just about everything that he did, uh, putting on his clothes in the morning. Uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was like whatever his life was was going to be an open book. Elizabeth Warren didn't take that approach. It was similar in certain regards, but it was one that, at least from a voter interest standpoint and from a, hey, let's get traction with people finally standpoint, it really did begin to click and has been working for her in a major way. Let's talk about Bernie Sanders. 18 million. He is the champion in terms of individual donors. He has claimed over uh, 1 million donations this quarter. Uh, just to give you context, Elizabeth Warren, again, was second with 384,000. But he only brings in 18 million. Is this a disappointing number for Bernie? Yeah, he, he would have liked it to be bigger. Of course, everyone would like it to be as big as it possibly could be. But he was somebody who really in 2016 had that that fire, that energy that uh, got uh, individual donors just behind him in a way that we had never seen before in a presidential primary. And the difference now is that he just has a whole heck of a lot of competition. It's not just him and Hillary Clinton for all intents and purposes. It's him and well, 23 other people. And as a result, he's been able to maintain a very high level of interest. He's doing as well as could be expected in the polls. But one has to wonder if he's going to run, and this is not a perfect comparison by any means, but run into sort of a Ron Paul problem where he's going to have yeah. a very passionate base, people who are always going to be behind him, who are going to come out to his rallies, who really think that 
Bernie Sanders is the bee's knees and he is never going to be anything but. But the but to the but is that, again, the competition is going to begin to squeeze him. It has squeezed him at least a little bit on the financial end of matters, Justin. And uh, it remains to be seen whether the squeeze is going to continue over the summer months. We're going into tough months for fundraising. People are on vacation. They're tuning out. They're not home watching TV. The debates in Detroit in a couple of weeks are probably not going to have quite as much interest as the first ones last month and in the novelty value of it all. So Bernie Sanders is going to have to walk a sort of an interesting tightrope over the next couple of months to get him through to the fall when interest is going to kick up again and kick up in a way that that's going to lead to the first primary and caucus contests, which, uh, of course, are coming up in February. So the the person that will round out our halves section, uh, these are people who had you know, maybe not the fundraising quarter that they wanted, but certainly ones that will keep them in the game. Uh, Kamala Harris, twelve million two hundred and seventy nine thousand donors. Uh, you, you might assume if if the debate had happened earlier, that number probably could have been even higher, right? Probably could have been. And the debate came at uh, sort of a, an odd time in that it was four days before books closed for the quarter. Yeah. So each quarter, the at the end of that third month of the quarter, the books close, and then the candidates officially reveal all of their money in, money out, debt, if they have it, cash on hand, uh, two weeks later. So uh, it, this, it was July 15th yesterday when they all had to get their stuff in by and, and uh, basically show their cards. So for the folks who were in the debate uh, and who did well, they had a debate that, <clears throat> pardon me, was uh, dovetailing with the end of the quarter push where the email messages and the pleas for cash uh, hit sort of peak level. And uh, for Harris in particular, uh, the, the senator sort of had not a double whammy, but a double advantage uh, of having that interest that's going to come right at the end of the quarter. And she was able to use that in a way that uh, said, well, OK, I just had this incredible debate performance, now you really have a reason to come and support me. And people did in a major way. He is not in the top tier, but we saw this with Julian Castro, even yeah. somebody who has been in the doldrums, has not been raising much money at all. He has been in the one and 2% level for most polls. He raised a ton of money during the last four days of June on the strength of his debate performance, which was widely and, and roundly uh, thought to be uh, way over and beyond expectations. So it does matter. And these last couple of days for every cycle always do matter. They really mattered because of uh, the factor of the debate coming into it. And Julian Castro's uh, intake for Q2 was $2.8 million. That certainly is impressive considering it went from no pulse to a pulse uh, in terms of his fundraising. And he did that on the back of the person that I want to now talk about. And that was him eating the soul of Beto O'Rourke on stage during night one of the debate. Uh, Beto, one of the headliners of the Q1 fundraising, has a paltry 3.6 million compared to the nine plus that he had in Q1. I emailed you this, Dave, to prepare you. And I will now ask you the question. If we were to say that Beto's fundraising went from the moment that Wiley Coyote realizes he's run off a cliff to the amount of time it takes for him to hit the desert floor. 
How many seconds are we talking here for Beto O'Rourke? I mean, it would be one of those situations where the proverbial rocket gets strapped on <laughs> and, and the rocket's pointing down and not and not up. And I, he he hit the ground faster than he even knew that he was falling. And let's put it in perspective. And this is an apples to oranges comparison here, but it's still profound. Beto O'Rourke raised more than ten million dollars in quarter two of twenty eighteen when he yeah. was running for the U.S. Senate en route to losing against Ted Cruz, but getting very close, and Beto O'Rourke having the single greatest fundraising performance of any U.S. Senate candidate in the history of the United States. So let's think about that for a second. Nobody in the history of running for the U.S. Senate raised more money in a single campaign than Beto O'Rourke. And now, not even a year later, we're talking about him in in the same breath as Marianne Williamson and Tulsi Gabbard. I mean, you just we'll just go by the numbers here. Cory Booker raised more than him. A.B. Klobuchar raised, raised more than him. He barely he, he raised less than a million more than Jay Inslee. And he is within a million of Julian Castro and Andrew Yang. I mean, that's the level that we are talking about him right now. So money is a perfect barometer or imperfect barometer for the success of a candidate. You can be a candidate who is outperforming in the polls relative to your fundraising. You can have a lot of money coming in and actually not be doing as well as one would expect in the polls. Uh, Beto O'Rourke is nowhere in the polls and he is nowhere in fundraising. And one has to wonder, barring something pretty miraculous, how he's going to be able to stay in this race through the end of this year. Now, never count anyone out. Things can happen. You got to think back to, for example, 2008 and John McCain, who was as broke as a joke in the middle of the summer. Yep. The year fired, before fired the his campaign election. Yeah. He became the nominee. But that's a little bit easier to do, perhaps, when your competition, your main competition is Rudy Giuliani and Mike Huckabee and Mitt Romney. I, for Beto O'Rourke, I mean, he's got some absolute all-star heavy hitters who are in this race who are just eating his lunch every which way to next Tuesday. And one really just has to wonder how he's going to pull out of what is, you know, this massive tailspin, rocket to earth, whatever metaphor well, you want. And use. also J John McCain was John McCain. Like He had previously had a, a good run in the pre Republican primary against an eventual two-term president. Uh, he was a nationally known figure. Beto O'Rourke literally, if part of the reason why he's here is because of his fundraising, as you just laid out. So if you can't flip Texas and you can't raise money, then exactly why are you in this race? Because and those were the things that you were good at. And, and that's a question that he's going to have to to wrestle with over the next couple of months is why why am I in this race? Now, there's the possibility, and this is being bandied about in, in Texas a whole lot, of him dropping out of the presidential race and running against John Cornyn, who's up for senator from Texas, who's up for reelection in 2020. But at this point, man, I mean, the the wattage has dimmed so low, the star power has faded to such a degree one wonders if Beto O'Rourke's political future is is going to be sometime in the quite distant future, and he just needs to get out of the game. Again, don't count anyone out. And it's possible that something crazy could happen. As bad as his debate performance was 
in June. Maybe it's just going to be on, on the polar opposite and, and just be so stellar that everyone's talking about him again. That is possible, but it's really going to take something truly monumental in I, order for him to get back in this thing. I have I have led the charge uh, for, for, for Beto short sellers, and I am here to tell you I'm reporting exclusively on the podcast. <laughs> it's not happening. It's over. Turn out the lights. It's done. Uh, all right. So let me let me ask you something about Kirsten Gillibrand, because you mentioned her before. And this is something that I brought up on the show a few weeks ago that is fascinating to me. We have a gigantic glut of candidates right now, but we have a very, very weird primary that's being played out. Whereas back in the day, if you raised X amount of money and you were a candidate that really needed a big upset, you could kind of hide in Iowa. You could kind of hide in New Hampshire. You could raise whatever money you were going to do. You could build your inroads in these very influential early states and then hope for a miracle. And then that would be at the moment that people are watching uh, for, for these kinds of stories, you could explode at the right time and that could catapult you. But between the interest that we have right now in politics, the ratings that these debates are getting, and the fact that these debate floors, which to me are kind of the untold story, I don't think that, uh, you know, of these 20 candidates, we might actually just have a five candidate race by Iowa because it, it, you know, there's these stories coming out that Kirsten Gillibrand and some of these other candidates are spending, you know, $40 on a customer acquisition for one donation on Facebook to hit these debate floors. They're chewing through money like uh, at a ridiculous rate. Is that is that something that we should be watching out for? So what we've seen from the and we, we just put up an analysis on publicintegrity.org that looked at the fundraising of every candidate and also specifically the burn rate of every candidate. And what we mean by burn rate is, are they spending more money than they're bringing in? And there's really sort of a kind of two tier system that we got here. We've got about five candidates who are doing gangbuster financial fundraising stuff. Okay. And that's Bernie Sanders, that's Joe Biden, that's Pete Buttigieg, Kamala Harris. Uh, and, you know, uh, that is a situation for them that is going to allow them to grow, to add staff, some of the stuff that we talked about at the top of the show. The flip side of that is somebody like a Kirsten Gillibrand, somebody like an Amy Klobuchar, uh, somebody like a Cory Booker, somebody like a Beto O'Rourke who quite literally are just spending more money than they can raise. And that's going to that's gonna run out, okay? They don't have an endless amount of money. Now, some of the senators, uh, Ann O'Rourke, who's able to do this as well, they had money sitting in their campaign accounts from their congressional campaigns, Senator House. And by law, they can transfer that over. And many of them did. Bernie Sanders also did this too. And they had basically a cushion going into this where they knew even if they didn't raise as much money as uh, as they needed to to keep pace with their spending, they had this big pot of millions and millions of dollars that they could rely on and that they, they could use to kind of bridge the gap between entering the race and some point months in the future when stuff was getting perhaps a little bit tough. But we've got you know, more than six months now before anyone starts casting ballots or caucusing. And for some of these candidates, they're they're getting pretty bare bones here. It's getting pretty threadbare. And uh, it's maybe into the low millions of dollars. We even have some of the candidates uh, who are well under a million dollars. And you got to be able to pay people. You got to be able to travel. Let's say nothing about putting ads up on Facebook or Google or TV or radio. And if you can't just do sort of the basic 
blocking and tackling of running a presidential political campaign, then there's there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do going forward. Why are you in the race? To go back to the question you asked earlier. And and considering these debates are so influential, they are driving the media narrative. And we've already seen it once with Hickenlooper, once with Eric Swalwell, uh, that if you can't make the debate stage and it's going to get harder to make the debate stage with these next two after Detroit, like now the question is like, okay, well, now this is the like flashing red light. Your time is over if you can't hit these individual donor numbers, right? Yeah, and, and the debates have really served as a, uh, a whittling down or weeding out of, of candidates already. <laughs> Who's talking about Wayne Messam? All right. He's still in the race. The mayor of Miramar, Florida. OK, his polling numbers are about zero and he hasn't dropped out, even though the latest campaign finance numbers that came out for him show him literally in the red. He's in he has more debt than he has assets. Yeah. Right? And and he has almost nobody working for his campaign. So he can stay in for as long as he wants to. Is anyone going to pay any attention to him? No. So if you want to operate in irrelevancy, then, well, that's kind of up to you. But if you're Kirsten Gillibrand, you want to operate in irrelevancy well into the second, third, fourth, fifth week of the campaign when it is truly afoot and and people are casting ballots. It, it, It seems to kind of defy logic. Now, sounds like she's having a pretty good time out there. Okay. She likes campaigning. Yeah. She, she's going around and and, and doing the best that you can. I, I think out of anyone there, and I've talked to several other reporters who are on the campaign trail constantly week in and week out, they say, if anyone out here is truly having fun, it's Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah. And, you know, good for her. She, in a way, doesn't have as much to lose as some of the others in the sense that she just won re-election to the U.S. Senate. She's going to be a U.S. senator for the next five and a half years, providing all goes well for her. Okay. So it's not as if she's going to be in the same position as a candidate who is not in office right now because his or her term has ended and they're now running for president, a uh, previous term, uh, or, or they're running for president and not running for the office that they, they currently hold right now. And there are examples of both of that. So she's kind of sitting in a, in a pretty decent perch in that regard. And, Maybe you're going to have a couple of these candidates who say, look, I'm just not going to worry about any of this. I'm not even going to worry about money uh, all that much. I will run a bare bones, austere campaign. I will show up in places like New Hampshire where you can retail politic. I will show up in places like Iowa where you can do the same. And I'm going to give it a go. And maybe things will fall my way, particularly when some of the other candidates begin to drop out. I, I, I think you know, the Seth Moulton's of the race and the it, Tim Ryan's and some of the others who aren't even getting up on the debate stage, it, it's unlikely that they're going to make any difference. And it seems to be not too terribly likely that they're going to stick in all the way to, well, and, uh, to, to, to much more pass this year. And that's the thing is it's all fun and games until you don't make a debate stage because you can't hit the individual donor mark. And and then Correct. at that point, yeah. as, and I would say it's going to hit harder for the people with the bigger names. That's when you're you're going to really have to answer some hard questions, unless you're unless you want to make a you know have some narrative reason why you're not going to participate or whatever. Uh, all right. I mean, th- these guys have egos and credibility <laughs> on the line too. And if you are a supposed big name and you can't even get up on the debate stage, or you're consistently polling in the one and two percent range, then 
at some point you you, you got to fold your fold your hand and, and try to fight the next battle. Because that yeah, I think you can survive bad polling more than you can survive not being on the debate stage. Because you you, yeah. you cannot survive the entire political media landscape gathering in one town and you not being there. Like that that is that is a a, a mark of a mark of death. All right, uh, one last thing. Of all the have-nots here, and and basically people that raised between uh, you know a million dollars and and five million dollars, were there any signs of life? Anybody who uh, you mentioned Julian Castro before? Anybody else that had uh, a by and large, you know, not a gigantic haul, but a promising one? Castro. <laughs> Castro's I, it. He, he's the one who really stood out, and uh, and you can thank his debate performance for. For that, uh, the fact that he was able to raise more than a million dollars in, in just a handful of days after that debate performance really speaks to how well he did and how he caught fire. Um, you know, Andrew Yang is uh, definitely a uh, well, he's he's a very interesting and odd candidate, uh, but yeah. somebody who was able to to raise a you know a decent amount of money. A- Andrew Yang has this year raised more money than people who are in elected office, uh, some of the other can- candidates. Uh, he's somebody who is getting 1,000, 2,000 people to show up to his various rallies. Is he going to be the next president of the United States? Almost certainly not, but he's somebody <laughs> who has definitely been able to capture the imagination of folks who aren't necessarily uh, all that crazy about politics or who are searching for a Democrat who is speaking in very different terms about economic issues, uh, about jobs. Uh, and Andrew Yang is certainly doing that, too. Somebody who is also very savvy when it comes to things like cryptocurrency and and, and kind of, you know, speaks a language, if you will, that uh, that many of the other candidates don't speak, either on the campaign trail or the debate stage. And he's not a politician. So yeah. he is now, but he hasn't been until he ran for president. So there's a great Washington Post magazine article uh, about Andrew Yang as sort of like the guy who is your friend and he's a little off and a little weird and he's always talking about politics and uh, <laughs> all of a sudden people are actually paying attention to him as a presidential candidate and they liken that that person to, well, Andrew Yang. And uh, in a way, he is that person. So we'll see what happens with him. Um, well, and the one, and the one thing, the one, the one thing I will say about too. Yang is he has already – qualified for that second debate floor he has like and that that to me is important because if, if, if we're if we're going to see a culling then having those individual donors early uh especially for a candidate like him that's a huge advantage because that spotlight is going to get brighter and brighter it will and it will and if he can maintain at least a a status where he's getting on the debate stage and has enough money where he can kind of do his Andrew Yang show thing and and have these rallies that are almost sort of mini Bernie-esque compared to Bernie 2016. Yeah. Then that's that's going to be something that that will keep him at least in in the conversation uh, in a way that many of these other other candidates uh, will not find themselves in the conversation. All right. Dave Leventhal, Center for Public Integrity. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure, my friend. Likewise, sir. Have a great day.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>